Blog Talk Radio. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never connected to Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called None Other, Discovering the God of the Bible. This detailed look at God's character can strengthen your trust in the Lord and deepen your love for Him. Request your free book by writing to noneother at gty.org. That's noneother at gty.org. The offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2019. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. 
Now, as you know, we have been talking about the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, His return to this world. And in particular, we find ourselves in the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians. So if you will, open your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And as I told you last time, this is an amazing, amazing little book, this very brief letter of just three chapters. And written to a a wonderful church, a church that was marked by genuine salvation and love and grace and hard work. Their testimony had flourished in the world and it had spread everywhere. In fact, uh, two letters are written to this church and never in those two letters is there any issue brought up in which they were deficient either doctrinally or in terms of their conduct. They're a remarkably faithful church. And yet it is to this church that our Lord delivers some of the most powerful, powerful warning passages in all of Holy Scripture. And they come in particular in the fifth chapter of the first letter and in the first and second chapter of this second letter. So we are looking at these chapters with a view to better understanding the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Let me read for you a portion of the first chapter after his introduction. We'll pick it up in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecution and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. The key here is verse 7. The statement, the Lord Jesus will be revealed. The Greek word for reveal is apocalypsis. This is the apocalypse. This is the unveiling. That's what that word means. The uncovering. The full revelation of the glory of the Son of God. Now we talked about last time the fact that the first time He came, He came in humility. He came veiled. In fact, He was in the world. The world was made by Him and the world knew Him not. John 1.10 He said on many occasions, you don't know me, you don't know my Father. They did not recognize Him. There was a brief glimpse of His second coming glory given to the disciples at the transfiguration. At the end of Matthew chapter 16, the Lord says, some of you standing here are going to see my glory. 
And then Peter, James, and John were taken to the Mount of Transfiguration. He pulled back the veil of His humanity, and His glory was manifest, His second coming glory. And they, you remember, fell over as dead men. But apart from that unveiling of Christ on the mountain to those three apostles, His glory was veiled. He promised, however, in the sermon, the last sermon He preached in Jerusalem, the sermon on His second coming in Matthew 24 and 25, He promised that the next time He came, He would come in full glory and every eye would see Him. Everyone in the world would see Him return. He said this coming would be preceded by all the heavenly lights going black. And out of the blackness would come the blazing glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such an overwhelming appearance of His glory. The whole world will see that men would cry for the rocks and the mountains to hide them from the face of such blazing glory. The Lord Jesus will return. And the Apostle Paul says He will return from heaven, where He is now at the right hand of the Father, with His mighty angels, who will be the agents of judgment and the gathering of the elect as well, in flaming fire, not earthly fire, but the fire of judgment and the fire of glory. Now, why is He coming back? Why does He have to come back? Why can't He just take us all to heaven when we die and wrap up history some other way? Why does He have to come back? Why is that necessary? Why is that essential? Two reasons are given here. Two reasons are given. One, retribution. Verse 8, He comes dealing out retribution. Two, relief. He comes in verse 7, to bring relief. Those are the two purposes for His return. And they are bound up in redemptive history and in the display of His own justice, righteousness, and glory. Now, last time we talked about retribution. I just want to take a brief look at it again. Notice verse 8, the word retribution. When He comes... From heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, it will be to deal out retribution. It means a full and just punishment. A full and just punishment. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, it's repeated in Romans 12 and repeated again in Hebrews 10. Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. And that repayment, that final repayment, that final vengeance is retribution that occurs at His return. Now, why is this necessary? And that's, that's a compelling question that has a very direct answer. Why? Go back to verse 6 again. Why? It is only just for God to repay. It is only just. The Lord cannot bring an end to the world. He cannot bring an end to human civilization. He cannot bring an end to human sin. He cannot wrap it up without the final triumph of justice. 
The world is full of injustice and unrighteousness. It will not end that way. It is only right, it is only just for God to repay. The, the Greek word is dikaion, which means justice or righteousness. And then in verse 9, people will have to pay the penalty. Sinners will have to pay the penalty. It is demanded by God's justice and His righteousness. The penalty for sin is spiritual death and then judgment and eternal punishment. Who will be subjected to this retribution? Three separate statements are made with regard to that. The first one is in verse 6. It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, persecutors of the saints. Persecution is mentioned back in verse 4 and 5 where he says concerning them that he thanks the Lord for them and particularly for their perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And then at the end of verse 5 refers to them going through suffering. This persecution, this suffering is at the hands of those who are doing everything they can to harm the people of God. It is only just that the persecutors be repaid by God for their great, grave sin. Warnings come in the Scripture to those who would persecute believers. In Matthew 18, our Lord said it would be better for a millstone to be put around your neck and for you to be drowned in the depths of the sea than to offend one other believer. In fact, before you would do that, you would be better off to poke out your eye or cut off your hand rather than engage in something that's going to cast you into eternal hell. So those who will experience this retribution are those who have persecuted the people of God. Secondly, in verse 8, it is those who do not know God. Those who do not know God. People ask all the time, What's going to happen to the people who don't know God? There's the answer. That is when retribution will answer that ubiquitous question about what is God going to do with the pagans and the people who never heard and the people who don't know Him. And the answer is given very straightforwardly here. Those who do not know God will be dealt a just and righteous retribution. We talked about that last time. But then there's a third group, and that is also in verse 8, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So you have retribution, judgment, vengeance pronounced upon the persecutors of the saints, those who do not know God, and those particularly who do not obey the gospel. Now I want to say that there will be degrees of punishment and suffering in hell. In Revelation 20, verse 12, we have a very straightforward statement, and it is this, that everyone at the great white throne judgment, all the unbelievers, will be judged, and they will be judged individually, not collectively, but individually based on the record of their deeds. 
There is a divine record of every human's life. That record is the basis of the severity of their judgment. In the 10th chapter of Luke's Gospel, we get another insight into the fact that there are differing judgments in eternity. Listen to chapter 10, verse 12. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. What does he mean? Any city that rejected his messengers. It would be more tolerable for Sodom, which is to say there there are variances of punishment in the future. The severe punishment, not for Sodom, as horrible as it was, but the severer punishment comes to those that reject the messengers of Christ. And then he says in verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, cities in in Israel. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You'll be brought down to Hades. Those cities which heard Christ speak, those cities in which He entered and preached, would be subject, the inhabitants subject to far greater punishment than even the horrible city of Sodom. In the 12th chapter of Luke, our Lord tells a parable about servants. And He makes a a point of the differing punishments that are going to come to the servants at the end of the parable. Listen to verses 47 and 48 of Luke 12. And that slave who knew his master's will and didn't get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. For everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. We, we throw that statement around, to whom much is given, much shall be required. That's not talking about blessing. That's not talking about reward. That's talking about punishment. Punishment. Some will receive few stripes, some many. But the severest punishment, as I showed you last time, and I will remind you about it because it's important in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews 10 and verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you just go on in the path of sinning after you've heard the gospel, there's no other sacrifice for sins than that, and you've rejected that, a terrifying expectation of judgment results. All that is left when you reject Christ is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. In verse 29 he says, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. When you trample on the Christ of the gospel and insult the Spirit of grace who pointed to Christ, the next verse says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. 
Those who persecute the saints will feel the retribution and the vengeance of the Lord Jesus. Those who do not know God will have that same vengeance. The punishment will be lesser, but it will nonetheless be the same kind of punishment that we'll see in a moment. And for those who reject the gospel, the severest punishment of all is promised. Now, how does this punishment come? How is it delivered? What is it? Three features. Go to verse 6. The first feature is simply the word affliction. God will repay with affliction, general misery. The punishment involves misery. It involves misery that lasts forever. Verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal olathros, eternal ruin, eternal misery. And what defines that misery, again, is in verse 9, it is away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. It is the utter absence of God, as we talked about last time. To be living in an everlasting moment of misery, a moment that never ceases, and there is nothing of the presence of the Lord there, nothing of the glory of His majesty, nothing to mitigate the suffering. This retribution will come when the Lord is revealed from heaven. We read about that in Revelation 19 earlier. It happens at His second coming. Then in chapter 20, you have the great white throne judgment where the sentences are meted out, followed by punishment in eternal hell. Paul, contemplating this to the Corinthians, said, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We need to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature so that they can know the truth and come to know God and believe the gospel. Jesus is coming to judge. The holy angels are coming with Him to mete out that judgment as His agent. But, but that's not the only reason He's coming. That is a just reason. It is just for Him to repay. He created a perfect earth. He created a perfect universe. Sin has distorted it in a devastating, damning way. And it's only right that He comes back and reverses the curse and brings justice in the midst of injustice, righteousness in the midst of sin. But secondly, and wonderfully so, he comes for relief. Verse 7, to give relief. Anasis, rest. Rest. Think of it in the broadest possible terms that you can imagine. Rest in a cosmic sense. Rest in an everlasting sense. Rest in an eternal sense. Rest in every conceivable sense. Paul said to the Corinthians that when he heard about all that was going on in the Corinthian church, he had no rest. He said he was without rest on the inside and on the outside, 2 Corinthians 7, 5. We all understand that. Life, life is trouble. 
its constant, incessant trouble, punctuated by brief moments of rest. Now, we have entered into salvation rest, the writer of Hebrews makes clear, but we have not yet entered into that eternal rest and that eternal relief. The word could mean ease, comfort in its fullest sense. This rest will be given when He comes, as verse 10 says. Now, how are we to understand this rest? First, it is relief from affliction. Back to verse 7. To give relief to you who are afflicted. It's the end of persecution. It's the end of a sinful world doing damage to us. Persecution at any level. It's the end of the sinful world encroaching upon our lives in any sense, in any way. It's the end of Satan being able to use the, the world system to tempt us. It's relief from every form of invasion of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Every evil stimulation is gone. It's the end of all of that. And it is the end of persecution and suffering and all affliction. But not just for those who have been afflicted, Paul says, but to us as well. And you can make that us as broad as you desire. It's really encompassing all believers. All of us will be delivered. Some of us have not been persecuted as the Thessalonians were. There have been people persecuted through all of Christian history, and now more than ever in history they're being persecuted. But for some of us, we have escaped that degree of suffering, but we have our own persecution. The world hates us, all who live godly in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12 will suffer persecution. We all know a certain amount of it. So all of us will receive this rest, all of us this relief. It actually literally says, along with us. Those who have been persecuted, along with us. All believers, all saints. How that works at His coming. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where we started our study. And the snatching away of the church. We know here that our Lord is going to come and snatch His church up from this world. And that is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. Verse 15, This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And then, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Be comforted, your rest is coming. And how do you define rest? You define rest this way, being caught up from the grave, caught up from the earth, meeting the Lord in the air, going with Him into heaven, and being with Him forever. That is rest. That is complete rest. We will always be with the Lord. Never, ever again will there be a moment that we will not be with the Lord. 
Jesus said in John 14, I'm going to go away and I'm going to make a room for you in the Father's house. I'm going to come and get you. And I'm going to take you to be with me. And that is the taking of the church, the snatching of the church. Notice, our Lord doesn't come to earth. He doesn't put his feet on the Mount of Olives. Notice also, he stops in the midair and believers go up from the earth to meet him in the air and then are taken back into heaven to be with him forever. This is not the second coming in judgment. This is not the establishing of his kingdom on earth. This is the next event, the snatching away of the believers. All of us who are true believers will be caught up in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first. Their glorified bodies will be created and uh, they'll rise with ours that'll be transformed on the way up and we'll never have another moment away from the Lord. We'll be in his presence forever and therein lies our total eternal rest and relief. On earth, when we're in heaven, we'll be having the marriage supper of the Lamb and receiving our rewards. But on earth, after the snatching away of the church, judgment will begin. And along with judgment, the work of Satan will come to this world in horrifyingly destructive ways. During that period of time, that period called the tribulation, that seven-year period after the church is taken out, people will hear the gospel. The gospel will be preached because Jews will be saved, 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe. And they'll become missionaries preaching the gospel in the world. Two witnesses of Revelation 11 will preach the gospel. The gospel will be preached by angel flying in the sky. The gospel will spread across the world so that people from every tongue and tribe and nation will be converted. There'll be a huge number of conversions, probably the greatest revival in the history of the church, history of the world. And, of course, Satan will go after believers and persecute them viciously during that same period of time. Those, many of those believers will be killed. What happens to them when they die during the tribulation? They've come to faith after the church is gone. They, the only people left in the world be non-believers, but the gospel preached. Many believe, and they're killed. What happens? Listen to Revelation 14, 13. 14, we'll start in verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Tribulation saints. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. All those martyrs slaughtered by Satan and his forces. Yes, says the Lord, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Rest will come to the persecuted believers of the time of tribulation and rest will come to them when they enter into the presence of the Lord. The next event at the end of that tribulation is the coming of the Lord in glory. He comes in glory and He establishes His millennial kingdom. Revelation 20 says He comes down to this world and establishes a kingdom for a thousand years and in that kingdom, his people become the agents of the king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He rules with a rod of iron. He subdues the entire earth. Nations come to Jerusalem to worship him. This is a time of peace. This is a time of righteousness covering the world. The agents of this are the glorified saints who come back and reign and rule with him by applying his rule across the world. This brings millennial rest to the world. As the kingdom begins, all his enemies are destroyed. 
Satan is bound for a thousand years along with all the demons, and the Lord rules in righteousness. That ends with a rebellion of some. The rebellion is immediately squashed, and that thousand-year period ends, and justice has come back to reign in this world. After that, Revelation 21 and 22, our Lord literally dissolves the universe as we know it and creates a new heaven and a new earth wherein is eternal rest. This is the rest that is to come. We get a taste of it in our salvation. We get a taste of it in the life of the church. But this is the rest that is to come. And it is defined as being forever in the presence of the Lord. In a place where there's no sin, no iniquity, no transgression, no evildoer, no possibility for any of that. Pure righteousness, pure joy, pure peace, pure love equals pure rest. Now why? And this is an amazing point. Why is God doing this? The what is the rest. But why? Answer, same answer that I gave you last time for the retribution. It is only right. Verse 6, it is only just. It is only just to give relief to those who are afflicted and to the other believers. It is only just. Think about that. That is a startling statement. It is only just to repay. Antipodidomy. Very, very strong word. It is only just. It is essential to God's nature as holy, to God's nature as righteous, to God's nature as just. It is essential that He give relief. It is right to do that. This is an amazing thing to think about. We can understand that it is right, that it is just, and therefore it is necessary for God to punish and repay with vengeance those who rejected Him. We can understand that kind of divine justice. But how about the other side of that divine justice? Where it is just as necessary and just as right and just as equitable for God to give us eternal relief. Now, I can understand that, that it is just for God to punish sinners, but how is it just for God to give rest to us? Isn't that just grace? It is grace. It is grace from the beginning to the end, but it is also just. And what makes it just is that the Lord Jesus Christ has paid in full the penalty for the sins of His people. And the payment was received by God, and God validated it by raising Him from the dead because God was propitiated, God was satisfied. And God must, by His own nature, as just and righteous and holy, He must give relief and eternal rest to those for whom Christ purchased it. 
That's a powerful reality, isn't it? We celebrate the justice of God punishing sinners. The gospel makes it necessary that God also reward believers. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and doesn't say faithful and gracious to forgive our sins. It says He's faithful and what? Just to forgive us our sins. He must punish sinners. And He must reward saints. Not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done. He became a curse for us. He became sin for us. Salvation, says Paul in Romans 3, doesn't come by the law or by works, but through Christ and His substitutionary atonement. Jesus is coming back to bring justice. Justice to the sinners and justice to the saints. And that leads us to the the third point, who, who receives this? Verse 6 says, God is just in repaying with affliction those who afflict you. And He's just in giving relief to you who are afflicted. To all of us who have suffered at the hands of the enemies of God, to all of us who have had general misery and trouble in the world, there is a just recompense coming. It is just to give us relief and rest. So first it comes to all of those who have been mistreated and rejected by unbelievers. That's the negative. The positive is in verse 10 when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul reminded the Thessalonians that when He came, he says, we constantly thank God, chapter 2, verse 13, that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. All who believe, all who believe will receive this eternal rest. Go over to chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians and verse 13. We should also, Paul says, always give thanks to God for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord. That's where it all started with sovereign love. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. For it was for this He called you through the gospel, our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is sovereign love in eternity past. Sovereign love leads God to choose you. He chooses you by His Holy Spirit, brings you to faith in the truth through the gospel for the purpose of bringing you to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose is 
that all he who has chosen, he justified, and all he justified, he glorifies. So who is to receive this relief? All the elect, all those whom God loved from eternity past, all whom he chose, all whom he called, all whom he regenerated, all whom he justified. And it is only right that he bring them eternal rest. Final question is how? How does the Lord do this? In what way? Verse 10. When he comes to be glorified, whenever, literally, hatan in Greek, whenever he comes, or later in the verse, a couple of words later, on that day, on that day when he comes. The people who will receive this eternal rest are identified in verse 10 as His saints. His saints. His holy ones. Made holy. Made holy by grace. Made holy. Our sins placed on Christ on the cross. His righteousness covers us. The ones covered in the righteousness of Christ. The ones who are, let's borrow the word in, the ones who are in Christ and in whom Christ dwells. He comes to be glorified in His saints, not with His saints, not alongside His saints, but in His saints, which means that His glory will be inside of us, radiating from us in a way that perhaps we get a glimpse of in the transfiguration of Christ. He will be glorified in His saints. The Lord's glory will be perfectly displayed, perfectly reflected, perfectly revealed through His saints. Philippians 3.21 says we'll have a body like His glorified body. 1 John 3.2 says we'll be like Him for we see Him as He is. This is what Paul talked about in Romans 8.19 as the glorious manifestation of the children of God. The world doesn't now know who we are. They can't see. We're like Christ. We're veiled. But the time will come for the glorious manifestation of the sons of God. And the glory of Christ that is in us will be fully revealed and manifest through us. We will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. So what will happen in this Glorious rest is we will be like Christ. We will be glorified. And secondly, we will give ourselves to eternal worship. Back to verse 10. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed, we will marvel at Him. We will be like Him and we will marvel at Him forever. Thaumazo is the verb. It's used a lot by the Gospel writers. People constantly marveled at Jesus. They marveled at what He said. They marveled at what He did. They wondered about Him in a, in a way that indicated that they were sure there was some supernatural power. They marveled at Him even when His glory was veiled. We will marvel at Him forever when His glory is unveiled. And His glory shines through us as well. 
This is our eternal rest. To literally radiate fully the glory of Christ and be like Him as much as an exalted, glorified human can be like eternal God. We will radiate the glory of Christ and we will marvel at Him forever and ever and ever. Our souls will be swept away in the highest joy imaginable. What is the purest and highest joy? It is worship. This will be unending exhilaration of the human soul, the likes of which you cannot fathom. This is joy beyond joy, beyond joy, beyond comprehension of joy. This is satisfaction at its purest and highest level. 10,000 times 10,000 beyond anything you would ever imagine in anything that satisfies in this world. So he comes. Retribution, misery forever. Escalating dependent upon how much exposure you had to the gospel and how you responded. He comes to bring rest, everlasting rest, in his presence, not away from his presence. Everlasting satisfaction, everlasting joy. A few years ago, there was a very misleading book titled, Your Best Life Now. That's true if you're on your way to hell. But if you're on your way to heaven, this, this is not your best life. The Lord gives us much good, but this is our worst life. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, never entered the heart. It's, it's not perceivable, it's not imaginable, the things that God has prepared for us. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, He has something far better than we can ever understand. Let me close with 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The heavenly inheritance is reserved and we are preserved. The heavenly inheritance is reserved for us. That inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you. And we are preserved by the power of God for that final salvation to be revealed in the last time. Do you live in that hope? What should be your response? Look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Go down to verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls, your eternal rest. Really, if you're a grumpy Christian, you need help. And your help is to get your eyes off whatever makes you that way and start looking at what the Lord has prepared for you. Rejoice greatly. 
because of what is prepared for you. And it is reserved for you. And you are preserved to that day to receive it. You should be living with joy, inexpressible, full of glory. Let's go down to verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. It simply means continue to be faithful, keep sober, understand the priorities. But fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't hope on anything in this world. Fix your hope, not partially, but what? Completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like Abraham, we're all vagabonds hoping for a city with eternal foundations whose builder and maker is God. How strange is it that Christians live so differently than this? That they have so little interest in future glory. Narcissistic, self-centered, materialistic, shallow Christianity with its low view of God, its meager understanding of the glories of Christ, its shallow experiences of real worship, genuine prayer, and true holiness shows very little interest in the glory to come. This is glory that the Lord has promised you, and He must do it because it is only right. Christ purchased it for you. But please notice, it is still grace, verse 13, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It will always be grace, won't it? It will always be grace. He purchased it. Yes, yes, that means God gives it to us in a just fashion. But the whole thing is is going to always be grace. Always grace. We will no more deserve the redemption of these sinful bodies than we deserve the redemption of our polluted souls. Heaven's not going to be something we earn. We didn't receive the first part of salvation by grace and then we earn heaven. Heaven is as much grace as anything else. We will no more deserve our home in heaven than we deserve our place in the body of Christ. We will no more deserve the eternal weight of glory than we deserve the spirit of glory in this life. We will no more deserve sinless perfection of body and soul than we deserve forgiveness of sins committed by body and soul. We will no more deserve unhindered, unbroken, intimate, sweet fellowship and communion with the living Lord than we deserve to worship and pray now. It's always going to be grace. Always. And by the way, Peter says in verse 13, to be brought, present tense, it is on the way. It is on the way. It is being brought, literally, and will be delivered at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why would you idolize the passing world? That just aggravates your misery. Why would you idolize the passing world? That's disloyalty and a lack of gratitude to God. Idolizing the passing world depreciates heaven, shows a lack of love for Christ Himself. 
getting caught up in this world and not having a burning hope for heaven shows little weariness with sin. Getting caught up in the world evidences shallowness in satisfaction. Psalmist said in Psalm 17:15, I will be satisfied when I awake in your presence. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of glory. It is grace and only grace that will bring us there. And yet, it is right. It is just. For Christ graciously purchased heaven for us, purchased glory. And so our inheritance is reserved and we are preserved to the day we receive it. May we set our affections on things above and not on things on the earth. May we say with the Apostle John, even so come Lord Jesus. Come, bring rest to your people. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Sorry for late. Didn't realize the file stopped. Um, now we're going to go on to a song by Shailen. This is called Starly Mysteries here on Trippy Tori.
Lord who can truly understand your depths. And you this life, you're the source of every man's breath. Your mysteries, the sharpest of minds can't guess. They stand perplexed, can't fathom what you plan next. In the garden, we failed your command's test. We transgressed, now our world is a grand mess. Lord, you're perfect, so why should you demand less? Man's best is only a sinking sand quest. But through Christ, watch God's saving hand flex. Redeem the people north, south, east, and west. Glorious robes in the promised land dress. We stand blessed, all because of the Lamb's death. So as we're lifting up our praise to you, receive it, Lord. The object of our affection, who we adore. Fallen in our misery, you daughter into history. The pardon of iniquity, startling the mystery. The ocean complains. Mountains, the rain, the universe proclaims the glory of your name. And what am I that you called me to your side? And took this heart of stone and broke it open wide. A day is a day. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, Ark Encounter, and Creation Museum. Some Christians argue that the days in Genesis weren't ordinary days. Now, it's true the word day can have a variety of meanings, but we always know what a word means based on context. And the context of Genesis 1 is clear. These were ordinary days. Whenever the Hebrew word for day appears in the Old Testament with the words evening or morning, with a number, or with night, it always means a 24-hour day. Genesis 1 has all these modifiers. People don't question the length of the days in Genesis because of the text. They do it because they're trying to add millions of years into the Bible. But we need to allow God's Word, not man's Word, to be our authority. Learn more about the Gospel when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky by going to AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. Man, it's crazy how time flies. My mind tries to sit still, thinking how does one define wise? Feels like yesterday I was a newcomer, fresh in the game, ready to make the truth thunder. But as the beat plays, they lose wonder. After a few summers, the band's ready for a new drummer. Doesn't matter if you're not ready yet. Yesterday I was a cadet, now they call me a vet. But it's part of common sense that the artist time will end. To the young, this topic can be hard to comprehend. They don't come close to understanding how you can go from most demanded to abandoned in the ocean stranded. Surrounded by the waves of your weariness, some things you only learn from age and experience. And it's plain to me that all the famous men you see, the time is coming when they will be a faded memory. Cause one day you hot, the next day you not. One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah. What in the world was your mind thinking? 
you couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who yeah. it is Whatever happened to so-and-so, that's what they wanna know Eventually we learn that they all come and go Today's rising star, tomorrow dies with scars Today they all struck, tomorrow you washed up I remember watching Jordan's Hall of Fame speech Thinking this is what it's like to watch the lame reach and gasp But he tries to grasp what lies in the past Never to return, what lies in the past Did he tell himself, was he lost or sober? Did he know it was all but over? The moment that AI crossed him over If I could be like, didn't include dying light Let's shine the light on the one they call Iron Mike Nowadays he's known for being all weird But back in 88, nobody was more feared the peak of his powers. His opponents would retreat in moments he would eat and devour. Snuff with punches, but we must discuss this. Crushed it just enough to trust his toughness. Pride brings us to justice. You puffed up with smugness? You gonna meet Buster Douglas. Amazing that, which blazed like Petro. The new praise that made the waves in the metro. Was praised for days, but just a phase like retro. And fades like echoes. Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah What in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who it is What I'm speaking on is seriously welcomed by the few Even no experience to tell you that it's true On your radio station, this won't be found on the playlist Wisdom, the sound of the sages, resounding for ages The older I get, I notice it The whole of the script, hmm, it's found in the pages A holy writ, not the cash speech of the reverend But what a man sees under heaven Ecclesiastes 111 No matter who you are, death aims to stop ya Whether banker, doctor, or Frank Sinatra Before your time is done, meet the timeless one The dying, death-defying, rising, shining sun King Jesus, astounds and amazes He pounded the pavement to save those who were bound to their cages So let us praise the one who made the Everglades Our debt was paid, so in glory we'll never fade Never fade, never fade I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning Cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning And this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity Ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously Loving one another endlessly Billions billions years ago Outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know But Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago as 
long ago as that was You're still the same, you have not changed What can that mean but my God is immutable Immutable, you are beautiful You never change, you remain the same Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You said Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean but my God is immutable? Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the Yesterday we learned that the days in Genesis chapter 1 are literal 24-hour days. So when God created Adam and Eve, the universe was only six days old. But can we know how long ago that was? Well, yes, we can. You see, Genesis 5 and 11 give us genealogies from Adam to Noah to Abraham. And this list tells us how old each man was when he fathered his son. We can add up these ages and get about 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham. 
We also know Abraham lived 2,000 years before Christ and Jesus lived on earth 2,000 years ago. This information gives us an age of around 6,000 years. Get more answers about the age of the earth, creation, evolution, and more at AnswersRadio.com. Discover the truth of God's Word and the Gospel at AnswersRadio.com. Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? Surprise, I'm back in your section With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection More power than gravity His knowledge and strategies confound the academy Bow to his majesty He paid sin's salary, took up blame on Calvary Those who love his name spread his fame as the policy All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice Let's prize our master Christ and rise in the afterlife What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes Who hate truth, the gospel it's not fake news Our debt is sin The gospel sweeter than it's ever been Ain't nothing changed Let us in We got the medicine It's still human emergency The serpent attack You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts Stand up, stand up If you truly love the Son of Man Trust, Jesus is alive And his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up, stand up Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust, Jesus is the King So it's To my composition, lots of rhythm but not traditional, kind of different. But God's consistent, no contradiction. My proposition, through crucifixion, He mocked and crippled His opposition. It's not some fiction I'm spitting. The Son of God is risen, and my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison, and through the Spirit He brings a new birth, like an obstetrician. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip hop is missing. The proposition is my suspicion. We drop the mission, not to this, but the Word of God is it not sufficient? The doctrine is that the gospel fixes our shock. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens A squad of Christians go out and witness a God's commission Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition Stand up, hands up If you truly love the Son of Man, trust Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up, hands up Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the Lamb. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gon' celebrate and relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the Father wasn't gracious, no sending them. Again, he came straight blameless, no synonym. Again, nothing's been the same since, no synonym. Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no synonym. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus? When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is gonna spread across the land. What's 
How old is the earth? This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's word. Yesterday we learned that the days in Genesis chapter 1 are literal 24-hour days. So when God created Adam and Eve, the universe was only six days old. But can we know how long ago that was? Well, yes, we can. You see, Genesis 5 and 11 give us genealogies from Adam to Noah to Abraham. And this list tells us how old each man was when he fathered his son. We can add up these ages and get about 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham. We also know Abraham lived 2,000 years before Christ, and Jesus lived on earth 2,000 years ago. This information gives us an age of around 6,000 years. Get more answers about the age of the earth, creation, evolution, and more at AnswersRadio.com. Discover the truth of God's Word and the Gospel at AnswersRadio.com. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group of Christ. Put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to snatch cash from the furnace. To Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He proceeded was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater ambient. Came a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily. Posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority. So we both in the most exalted King Christ supreme. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer. No God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, what you get is a prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night, and his bright in the might in the dominant mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the lost that he found, though. He was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the crown. Yo, Satan had a shirt hold on him. Fight for the rope, but dope, and then. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the end. That's what we hoping in. Risen on it's spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hell bound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born, I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout, I was bought with a price. We gotta hope it won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises of God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent the name par excellence, prenom phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon, you see, the father of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. He's part of we, a pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrection. Bodily apocalyptic prophecy He's stopping all the mockery And scholarly snobbery That don't acknowledge him properly You ought to be on bended knee Before the preeminent It's awfully arrogant To reject him to your detriment Study the development From Old to New Testament You'll find a theme that's prevalent From age to age it's relevant Crisis on its center stage Forget religious sentiments The center on man But something less is what you're settling He is the most excellent
excellent Exercising benevolence And blessing a remnant With the benefits of his inheritance yeah. The sin of sinners That separated and segregated That severed the relations Between man and his maker And placed Christ on his costly cross And compensated his life, death and resurrection Emancipated and gave us Freedom from it all Freedom from the effects of the fall Freedom from Adam and Eve In the garden of Eden And from the law So the saints stand and applaud His grace and glorious cause With hands raised Praising his name Singing glory to God <laughs> How old is the earth? This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's word. Yesterday we learned that the days in Genesis chapter 1 are literal 24-hour days. So when God created Adam and Eve, the universe was only six days old. But can we know how long ago that was? Well, yes, we can. You see, Genesis 5 and 11 give us genealogies from Adam to Noah to Abraham. And this list tells us how old each man was when he fathered his son. We can add up these ages and get about 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham. We also know Abraham lived 2,000 years before Christ and Jesus lived on earth 2,000 years ago. This information gives us an age of around 6,000 years. Get more answers about the age of the earth, creation, evolution, and more at AnswersRadio.com. Discover the truth of God's word and the gospel at AnswersRadio.com. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love.
all, one race. This is Ken Ham, editor of the popular series of books, The Answers Book for Kids. Many people don't realise that Charles Darwin's The Descent of Man was a racist book. Now, Darwin claimed that Caucasians are the most highly evolved, and he called other people groups low, savage, and degraded. He certainly didn't invent racism, but Darwin's ideas seemed to give a biological defense for it. When scientists mapped the human genome, they confirmed we're all one race, the human race. And that's what the Bible taught all along. We're all descended from Adam and Eve, and that means we're one family, one race. Different people groups exist because of the event at the Tower of Babel. But when we start with the Bible, there's no justification for racism. Discover more about the biblical response to racism at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. All I want to do is praise your name From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same You are my God and all I want to do is praise your name
This is Ken Ham, co-author of the eye-opening book on Noah's Flood, A Flood of Evidence. I'm often asked how to fit dinosaurs in the Bible, and the answer is, don't. (laughs) We should always start our thinking with God's Word so we don't fit dinosaurs into the Bible. Instead, we use the Bible to understand dinosaurs. Now, the Bible tells us all land animals were created on day six of creation week. Dinosaurs were land animals, so they were created on day six. We find them as fossils because of the global flood of Noah's day. The dinosaurs that weren't on the ark drowned and became fossils. After the flood, dinosaurs got off the ark, but eventually went extinct for the same reasons many creatures go extinct today. Start with God's Word. Discover the truth about dinosaurs, creation, the age of the earth, the flood, and more at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again or others like it at AnswersRadio.com.
This is Ken Ham, editor of the popular series of books, The Answers Book for Kids. Many people don't realise that Charles Darwin's The Descent of Man was a racist book. Now, Darwin claimed that Caucasians are the most highly evolved, and he called other people groups low, savage, and degraded. He certainly didn't invent racism, but Darwin's ideas seemed to give a biological defence for it. When scientists mapped the human genome, they confirmed we're all one race, the human race. And that's what the Bible taught all along. We're all descended from Adam and Eve, and that means we're one family, one race. Different people groups exist because of the event at the Tower of Babel. But when we start with the Bible, there's no justification for racism. Discover more about the biblical response to racism at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com.
was fruit of spirit by GoFish. Want to find out more about GoFish? Go to GoFishGuys.com. G-O-F-I-S-H-G-U-I-S.com. GoFishGuys.com. Earlier we had Shylin, and you could um, see him at Lampmo.com. L-A-M-P-M-O-D-E.com. That's his record label, Lampmo.com. And Shylin spelled S-H-A-I-N-L-I-N-N-E. And next, we got a clip from a show called Wretched, and it says, this is the insidious nature of moralistic preaching here on Truthy Tories. Imagine you pull into a shop to get your oil changed. Out comes the technician with a bucket of vinegar and a sponge because he either can't remember how to change oil or he doesn't know. You'd skedaddle in a heartbeat. Imagine going to a dentist office to get your teeth cleaned when the technician, I think that's what they call them, the, the Nazi, basically, you know, with the flossing and the banging away on your gums and the poking with the she comes in with a bottle of shout and a wet rag and begins to clean your clothes. You would run for the doors. Imagine that, okay, for real, we get the point. What's this analogy about? The church, the gospel, and I'm sorry, but pastors who do not either know or they have forgotten the very basics of the gospel. American Gospel, it's a new documentary. You can catch it on Vimeo. It reveals that we have an epidemic in our country, and that is a lack of true and accurate gospel preaching. The first distorted gospel that they examine, oh, it's sneaky, and you've maybe heard a million sermons like this, but it isn't gospel preaching. It is moralistic preaching. There was a time in my life that I thought the goal of preaching was to get people to do what they don't want to do, which, by the way, is a terrible profession, you know, that my goal is to somehow arm twist or browbeat people into doing what they don't want to do. I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't. The Bible is not a book of moralisms. The Bible is not some clever stories that teach us how to live a better life. Wait a second. Doesn't the Bible contain those things? Yes, but that is not what the Bible is about. The Bible is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is all. And so when we fail to preach about sin, righteousness, judgment, Jesus dying on a cross, ascending into heaven, when we fail to talk about repentance and faith, and we simply teach people how to be a this, how to do a that, or nothing more than moralists. We want to, first of all, say there's nothing wrong with preaching morality. We certainly don't want to preach the opposite, immorality. But moralistic preaching, or sometimes identified as moralism, is preaching the commands of Scripture or the morals of Scripture and nothing else. Just pretty much saying to people, you be a good person and God will love you for that. And while we do not intend it, that is not just a sub-Christian message. It's actually an anti-Christian message. And the pastor who does nothing but preach moralisms is no better than our auto or dental technician. 
if, if that's what you call them. Moralistic preaching, not preaching about the cross, Jesus dying for sins, and in response to that, we do good things. They, they kind of seem to forget about that first part, and all they do is heap a yoke, a burden on people, and worse than that, moralistic preaching doesn't help, it doesn't save, instead it damns. The messages that just say be good damn people to their pride or to despair. That's it. Those are the two paths that moralistic preaching will send people on. Despair, I can't do all of that, or I sure can, and they get puffed up. Moralistic preaching is sneaky, subtle, deceptive. If you're wondering what exactly might that look like, I think the gospel should be preached in every sermon. If I've got somebody here that I've been trying to get to here for three years, they're my next door neighbor, and the guy preaching today is just talking about the joys of motherhood, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of motherhood, but if that's all this visitor that I bring hears, that's just a shame. Who's the Goliath in your life? Be a Daniel. The book of Revelation. It's about Israel and Russia. And none of those stories were written so that we can simply know how to be a good warrior or leader or live in a foreign land. They were written so that we understand Jesus better. We are not David. Jesus is David, the better David. Daniel doesn't point us toward how to have good leadership skills or engage with wicked rulers. Daniel does what? He talks about this coming Messiah, this little pebble that is going to bring the nations down and he will rule and reign. The book of Revelation, it's not about the daily news, it's about Jesus is coming back. What does moralistic preaching look like? Went to a Christmas Eve service, anticipating if any service should have the gospel in it. Christmas Eve, the youth pastor, well-intentioned, with the kids all gathered around, did nothing but preach moralisms. Hey, kids, have you ever been in the dark? It's really scary, isn't it? Well, that's what Christmas is all about. Light coming into darkness. Now, you need to go and be light. Please note, nothing he said was wrong, but it was not complete. It wasn't what the Christmas story is about. Then the senior pastor gave it a go, and he talked about gifts and how wonderful it is to get a gift. And we get a gift at Christmas time, Jesus in a manger. Question, why is that a gift? Why did we need that present? Nothing about sin, nothing about judgment, nothing about the gospel, and ultimately nothing about Jesus. And now, this is my own lecture. Just call when you feel like you just can't be forgiven. Here on Trippy Tolerance. 
you and I successfully defend life, big thumbs up. But if we never get to the spiritual side of the issue, then I fear we would have lost the big battle. The choice that you have made is a definite sin against God. It's the breaking of the law of God, and the curse of the law is death. And so what you feel by way of guilt is real. The good news of the gospel, though, is is that upon the tree, upon the cross, Jesus Christ bore the curse of all those who would believe in him. And by faith in Jesus Christ, all of your sins are forgiven and are washed and you are made clean from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet.
for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. What would you give up? You would give up your sin, your guilt, your sorrow, the accusing conscience, and what would you receive? You would receive peace with God. You would receive the peace of God. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ would take away all of your sins. He would move into your very life. He would dwell within you. He's preparing a place in heaven right now for all those who will commit their lives to him. You would lose everything that is tormenting you. And you would gain everything that will bless you and bring the peace of God and the blessing of God to your life. Again, that's from Wretched, and you can find them on YouTube as Wretched, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, and also Wretched.org is where they have a radio show and a TV show. Those were just clips from the TV show. And thanks for listening. Trippy Tall Radio, let's see, next spot for you is a vital book block here on Trippy Tall Radio.
once again, that's BioBookBot here on Truth Be Told Radio. You want to find out uh, our website is truthbetoldradio.com, truthbetoldradio.com. That's T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com, truthbetoldradio.com. And that's what we got it for the show. So I'm going to go out with Yancy and Friends with the VI Billy. Bye for now.